0: welcome to rising tide a podcast for career driven women to find inspiration find courage and find their voice hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the rising tide podcast i'm your host margaret winniger i am so excited that you're here because this is all about you i am passionate about helping ambitious women gain clarity on who they are and how to tap into that feeling that keeps telling you there's more. If you want to learn more, you can go to my website. It's margaretwinnegar.com. Let's get to today's guest.
1: I was really, really excited for the opportunity. I also had a little bit of imposter syndrome just because it was like, wow, it's no longer me and 10 other people like making sure that we're ready for mass production of this one iPhone model. And I always tell myself, like with every career move, if you're not feeling a little bit uncomfortable, then it's probably not the right one. I think the other thing was because I had been through a big change going from Eli Lilly, such a different culture to Apple, and then having to uproot my life and all my friendships to do that. I felt like, okay, if I've been through that, then this is just gonna be a blip on the radar. I can do a change again, it's just gonna be different.
0: Meet Amber Elig. Amber's career has evolved significantly from starting out as a mechanical engineer for Eli Lilly to now being a general partner for the Council, a venture capital fund that invests across vertical SaaS, FinTech, and healthcare. Although the jump from mechanical engineer to investor over the last decade seems like a huge shift on paper, Throughout this episode, Amber shares with us how these roles were natural evolutions throughout her career. Amber also talks about how she was able to design her career by gaining experience, learning what she enjoyed, understanding where she sought growth next, and ultimately being open when opportunity presented itself. I am so excited for you to hear her incredible journey and get to know Amber better. Enjoy.
1: Welcome to Rising Tide, Amber. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited.
0: Me too. Me too. I always fangirl just a little bit at the beginning of these, and I I try to rein it in, but I'm so pumped to get to talk to you and get to hear the story behind your amazing career. Well, thanks. I'm really excited. Yeah. I'm going to jump right in because, you know, I think it is really intriguing what you are doing. Today, and we're gonna back up in a few. But what's really neat is I've had a lot of conversations with female founders in the last couple of years, and I've gotten to speak to a lot of female founders. And what I haven't had a lot of opportunities to do is to speak with the women who are investing in startups and investing in founders. And so I'm super excited to hear this journey that you've been on and how you ultimately ended up because today your general partner at the council. So the council, you know, kind of in your like headline terms, it says you're a consortium of women who are active angel investors, investing in founders that are reshaping outdated industries. Why don't you tell me in your terms what the council is?
1: Yeah, that would be great. So actually the council did start as a consortium of female angel investors, all operators working at companies like Slack and Square and Airbnb and Lyft. And we all came together because we had little pockets of deal flow. We wanted to start angel investing, but we didn't have a community to do that with. And so that was about four years ago that grew by word of mouth to like 80 plus members, became a huge source of deal flow. And throughout that time I was building up my track record and decided I wanted to commit the rest of my career to venture. And so we launched our venture arm. So that's basically now the core part of the council, but we still have our angel community that invests alongside the fund. And the venture fund focuses, like you said, on outdated industries that kind of make up the fabric of our society. So a lot of these industries are. And sectors are very recession-proof. You know, think healthcare, construction, logistics, supply chain, very unsexy industries that many times get ignored when tech companies are being built. So I'm excited to find the founders that are building in those industries and invest in software only and usually at pre-seed and seed stage.
0: Yes. Yes. Okay. I always ask what I feel like is going to be an obvious answer, but like, was this something that growing up and even in college was becoming an investor, something that was a goal of yours?
1: Yeah. So for a while, I didn't know it was an option. I grew up in the Midwest. Mm. I went to Purdue, studied engineering, and even at a big engineering school, there wasn't a big push to understand what was going on in Silicon Valley. And I just kind of moved here by chance because I got a job offer at Apple after working at Eli Lilly for a few years. And as soon as I got here, I was surrounded by people, podcasts, coworkers, talking about startups being founded around us and I was raised by an entrepreneur, so I had seen companies getting founded before, but mostly small services businesses or small businesses in general. I had never heard of this model where you build a software company, you actually get people to give you money to go do it, and then you can scale it to millions of users. And so I really became fascinated. I've always loved technology and I've always loved entrepreneurship. And so that was the first moment, I think it was back in 2015, that I realized this is a career I want to go into someday, as soon as I have the track record and the means to do it. Yeah.
0: That's such an interesting phrasing of like not knowing it was an option. That's so Mm -hmm. interesting. I mean, I think you in some ways answered that was not knowing as an option is just because you didn't know that this existed or like, will you just say more about that?
1: I literally don't think I had heard of a venture capitalist when I was going through college. (laughs) Like I had no idea what that was. Maybe I heard the word in the distance, but it just wasn't in our, you know, common vernacular where I grew up or where I went to school. And it probably is now, like, you know, if you're on Twitter today and you're working in anything technology related, you're hearing about startups and you're hearing about venture capitalists, but I don't think it was like that back in the day for people living outside of Silicon Valley or growing up outside of Silicon Valley. So yeah, or California, maybe.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you on that. Okay. So this is fun because you kind of quickly said it, but we're going to come back to it because- You did something really interesting, which is you studied mechanical engineering at a top university for engineering, Purdue University. And I did a little Google searching. And what I consistently found is that female engineers typically only make up about 20% of graduates. So tell me, let's kind of go back in history and we'll come back to present day. How did you even land on engineering as the career path that you wanted to pursue?
1: Yeah, that's such a good question. So it all comes down to stubbornness <laughs> I and, and, and loving a good challenge. So <laughs> growing up, yeah, I was always good at math growing up. It was one of my favorite classes from a young age. And then in high school, it became clear. I went to a high school of like 3000 people. And in my math classes, I was not to brag, but I was always getting the number one test score. And so I remember I was Such a nerd, literally. I had a math class where they would put the top test, like they would literally pin your test on the wall for every test for quiz that we took all semester. And it was like all amber, like all around the room. And so that was an indicator to me. Like I'm definitely good at this. And even within a big sample size, I'm still pretty good at this. And I had one math teacher, I think it was like my trigonometry teacher, maybe junior year of high school. She came up to me and she's like, hey. You're really good at math, and I think you're good at science too, from what I hear from the other teachers. I think she had some ties with Purdue as well at that time, but she was like, just you know, not that many women go into engineering. And I think it could be a really good career for you. And Mm -hmm. then in parallel, I took a like a test that was supposed to predict what sort of career you could get into. And that was one of the like 10 options that came up at the end was engineering. And I was kind of always my dad was an entrepreneur for 15 years on his own business and started as an artist who didn't graduate college. And so he always encouraged me, like, do something stable. And I think when he saw that, like, oh, wow, you you tested like you could be an engineer and go to like a top school that happens to be in state. There was a lot of push from that end, too, to do it. But I would say that's not why I did it. I think it was really that math teacher coming up to me and just telling me not many women do this. And I think you should. And similarly, I didn't even really know what I was getting into at that stage. I knew I was good at math and science and I knew you had to be good at math and science to do engineering. I tested in, got into Purdue and I went into it. And I, I think that's my why. And then honestly, I think when I got to freshman year, I still didn't know what type of engineering I wanted to do because there are so many different ones. You know, there's everything from chemical engineering all the way to electrical engineering and they're vastly different. And even computer science too. You can be coding, dealing with chemical, dealing with materials. Dealing with electrons. And so there were definitely some that were not a fit for me. I'm a very like realist person and I respond to real objects that I can see and feel. And so I was very good at physics and math because it feels very concrete. But when you start talking about what direction a current is running through a wire, it's like completely over my head. I had to take those classes, and I was able to pass them, but it was not my forte. And same with chemistry you know, I can get through, but it's more memorization than like full understanding for me. So I kind of picked, you know, mechanical because I felt like it covered as many paths as I could want to take. And it gave me a lot of optionality and I was also okay at it. So yeah.
0: (laughs) Did you ever have a moment while you were going through where you're like,
1: well, I don't know if this is the right choice. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So many times. And that's where it comes to the stubbornness. It was not easy. And Purdue is known as a very tough engineering school. and. There are a lot of weed out classes and Mm. freshman year, they sit you down in freshman engineering and they're like, just, you know, look to your right and look to your left. One or two of the three of you are going to be gone at the end of this year and you will have switched your major. And so there were a lot of moments that I thought like, I'm not good enough at this. I can't do it Mm. because it's. A, it's, it's tough mentally. There's so many new things you're learning and a lot of it can get really abstract. But then B, it's just the workload in general. Like every single class is demanding the most out of you. And you know, you're working harder than all of your friends and you're having to make a lot of sacrifices. And so there were multiple times where I was like, you know what, I'm hating this right now. But then I still was like, I'm gonna stick through it. And I think it came back to that math teacher because I was like, not many women do this. And so I wanna prove that I can do it. And I think I knew early on that I didn't want to be a mechanical engineer for the rest of my life, but I was just like, I want to get this stamp of approval on my resume. I want to show that I was able to do it. And I think that it will better suit me. Even just the concepts that you learn in engineering, I think apply to a lot of things in life. So it felt like I was building a foundation and I didn't want to give up on that. That makes sense. It's
0: interesting. It sounded a little bit like doing something that most others are not willing or able to do is appealing, but also it almost the sense of like doing something that most women like kind of being one of those women, that's going to pave the way. Like, it seems like that is fire for you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Definitely propels me forward. Even in my current journey, it does. Well, yeah.
0: I mean, it's so interesting, right? Because it's like, we can, we're probably going to continue to see that because in each of these roles that you've held. And even as you moved away from engineering, you were still very much in heavily male dominated spaces. And even today as a female investor. So we're already seeing that, that spark, but also that stubbornness and that beautiful determination allowing you to kind of pave a path. Yeah, definitely. That's amazing. Oh my gosh. Okay. So you successfully graduate, you decide you're going to use your degree and you get your first job out of school working at Delta. So tell us about this transition. Now you're, you're out, you're in the real world and you are, you know, in your first full-time job.
1: Was it what you thought it would be? I love that you did your research and you pulled Delta out of this because actually, Delta, I actually worked there while I was in school. So it was mm. full time, but it was in spurts. So I actually took five, maybe five and a half years to graduate because I did this co op program. So after first year of engineering, you can apply and you get matched with a company after interviewing. And Delta was the one that I got matched with. And basically, every other semester, I would leave Purdue and I would spend an entire semester back at home working full time at Delta Profit. And so That was a cool experience because it was kind of the first time I was working in the real world in a nine to five job. I had worked in retail and I was an ice cream scooper in high school, but (laughs) I was like my first nine to five role that felt salaried, but it was, it was a product engineering role and it was very mechanical engineering centric. And I think that's actually where I determined I did not want to do that for the rest of my career because it was very, very detailed individual work. You know, you're reviewing a bill of materials for a part coming together, you're designing a 3D part or assembly on your computer. And I was spending a lot of time in a cubicle by myself as a college student. And I really like being around other people and I love diversity. And so my favorite parts of the job were getting to collaborate with the marketing team and like join them on photo shoots and bring the like faucet that we were designing to the photo shoot and like see this other world. And all the other engineers were like, thank God she's doing that because we never want to have to go to one of those photo shoots. And so it was just funny that I was a very different personality type than most of the people that I was working with. And that was an indicator to me that like, maybe this isn't the, you know, what I want to do full-time after school, but I'm still got them getting this experience. There's so much value to be said for uh, taking
0: theoretical concepts and applying them in a very practical, you know, using those skills. And I think that's so cool that you were able to do a a hybrid degree where you got to do hands-on, apply the theories that you were learning and do the work. And also it sounds like gain really helpful insights about yourself that you were learning while also finishing up school full-time. That's really, that's really incredible. Okay. So you kind of tucked that away. You had it, but kind of tucked it away because then, so it sounds like graduating yeah. then going to Eli Lilly.
1: Yeah. And it really kind of even building on that, I think, because I did that co-op program, I mm. learned how adults spoke at the office and mm. what they were looking for. And I actually think that that prepared me to interview post-college really well. Um, see more. Yeah, it really just set me up for my first job because I felt like I knew how people talk in meetings every day and like Mm -hmm. what sort of person they want to work with, and that made it really easy for me to kind of you know adjust my style or like my communication a little bit for this new environment I was going to be working in. So I suggest anybody in college like try to get internships, try to do co-ops. The more you can get that experience, the better. And then yeah, at Eli Lilly, I forget your your question about that. Well, tell us about your time there because you
0: you had a lot of success at Eli Lilly. I mean, you went from engineering to a team lead role, like you were moving up in the ranks. Yeah. So tell us about your time there.
1: Yeah, definitely. So that seed had been planted in my head. I probably don't want to be you know, a full-time engineer forever. And so I went into Eli Lilly, the job I got with process engineer, which is still very mechanical. You're focused on you know, the, the manufacturing process and how you can make it better and better, whether you're working with the machine or the actual design of what it was was a medical device for people with diabetes. It was like a, yeah. an insulin pen. And so I went in, I knew I had to kind of learn the rope and prove myself in that role before I would be able to move into something that was more cross-functional. But very shortly thereafter, I had a lot of support at Eli Lilly. They really prioritize mentorship and just even career-popping. Even as people are just coming out of college, they sit down with you three months in, six months in, a year in, and they assign you a mentor somewhere in the company. And then your boss is also kind of like on the hook to make sure you have a path. And (laughs) that's actually really cool. I've never worked anywhere else that was like that since then. And I really think it set me up for success because you know i was able to work as this process engineer and then i was working on this medical device as i told you but i was kind of one of a team of people that was working toward making this medical device successful it had been taken off the market due to supply chain instability and we had to make the supply chain and the manufacturing process more consistent so that we could consistently deliver this pen for patients that needed it before offering it again and so we had to prove before getting it back on the market that that would be possible and very quickly you know in team meetings i you know, loved communicating whenever we were, you know, rallying around a common problem and kind of coming up with a plan like, okay, I'm hearing this from you and I'm hearing that from you. It seems like you're speaking across each other, but I know what you're trying to say and I know what you're trying to say. Maybe there's a common solution. And so that just kind of came naturally to me. And I think my boss and mentors, knowing what my interests were, they suggested that I could work toward that process team leadership role where you actually formally are that person pulling together those conversations and keeping everybody on track to reach this goal. And I got lucky enough that the person that was currently in that role, you know, he was like happy to do it, but he wasn't like that excited about it. And so he liked having my help and I was able to really learn alongside him and then transition into that role. And he was able to, you know, move on to more interesting technical work that he was excited about. And so that worked out really well for me. We were able to relaunch this device. It was called Memoir and it's now like a legacy item for Eli Lilly, but it was a reusable electronic insulin pen. So I worked on that for I think two or two and a half years. And then I wanted to learn the other side of the business and just kind of grow my career there because I actually had this goal that I wanted to do an international MBA or I wanted to move internationally. I like. I just wanted to get out of Indiana. And I thought that's where I needed to go. And so I was Mm. always telling them, like, I want to work at one of your manufacturing lines in France or Spain or China. And they were like, okay, let's work you toward that. How about you like learn our insulin process here and how we make the actual insulin. And then maybe we can explore putting you on a short-term assignment out in one of those countries at one of our secondary sites. And so The second and last big role that I had at Eli Lilly or big area that I focused on at Eli Lilly was actual insulin manufacturing. And so we were bringing up a new site in Indianapolis, and then there were sister sites around the world that were coming up at the same time, basically to increase global supply of insulin. And it was cool because we were taking the best operators, like from the assembly lines all over the company, and they were being put onto this project, like people that had spent 20 years just making medicine and knew it very well. And they were feeding into the new process and the new equipment that we were buying to do it in a more state-of-the-art fashion since we had the opportunity to rebuild. And so that was a really cool experience. And I was, you know, on track to hopefully get my short-term assignment, you know, across the globe. And then as you know, I got an offer randomly to join Apple and move out to California instead. And so that kind of changed my, you know, I, I was very stubborn and stuck on my path of like, I had got to get out of here. And i not, i not out of Lily, but like I had always been in the Midwest, always been in the Indiana, really wanted to get out. And I thought that Europe or Asia was the answer. And it turns out that California was the answer for me. So oh
0: my gosh. Okay. I think it's so amazing that you were in a company that really gave you a voice, like really invested in you as an employee. And then, you know, as you were like able to articulate what it is that you wanted, we're were willing to partner with you on building steps to leading you there. That's really to your point like it is sadly very rare but such a testament to there are some very strong companies that Mm -hmm. do this and do it really really well and create career mapping for their employees you said you got an offer randomly for apple what do you mean
1: yeah so basically i think it was like 2014 around thanksgiving I checked my LinkedIn, and this was at a time where LinkedIn was not built into like my daily like notifications. I wouldn't just (laughs) open up the app. It was very early days, at least for me, and I had never heard of people being contacted by recruiters through LinkedIn and like hopping companies. And so, I opened up LinkedIn, and I saw that I had a message in there from a recruiter at Apple, and it had been sitting there for a month, and I. I saw it and I was like, oh wow, like I've been an Apple fangirl my entire life. Both of my parents were graphic designers. My dad led a digital ad agency. They all had Macs. Like I had a MacBook at college. All my friends had PCs. I was that person. And so I was like, this is awesome, but it has to be a scam. Like I literally thought that this was a scam. But I was like, you know, they're not gonna steal my identity with my resume. I'll just send my resume over, you know, see if there's any any truth to this. And Lo and behold, this recruiter was still interested and we hopped on the phone and then they invited me out to Cupertino to interview. But it was really interesting to this day. Like, I can't believe that this recruiter was able to find me and link my experience to Apple, but it turns out that that reusable electronic insulin pen, because a lot of the electronics were being made in China and there was a flexible circuit board inside, there were a lot of similarities to how that came together to the iPhone. And so he was able to put that together. Wow, this person has worked in supply chain, manufacturing, medical devices could be very similar to the iPhone. And so they had definitely identified that as a trend and contacted me to see if it was a fit. And it turned out it was. And so I ended up moving out to California, not knowing a single soul in the state. And yeah, the the rest is really history. So yeah. Wow. That's,
0: (laughs) oh my gosh. I just love this. Well, I love this for several reasons. And I think one is there's something really powerful about your goal was to expand your horizons outside of Indiana. And while you had originally thought that that would be international because of Eli Lilly, that what ended up coming to you was something that was very different out in California. And I I think there's such beauty in that willingness to be fluid. It achieved your goal to get out and expand your view. And I think that is just, there's something so powerful about knowing what it is that you want and kind of putting that out into the universe, because I, I can't imagine that's a coincidence. And then, I do. I get so excited when I look at something, this is like such a prime example of very transferable skills and expertise and experience in what looked like seemingly completely disconnected products and, and mm-hmm. industries. So I- I think that's so amazing that clearly the team at Apple and the recruiting team had locked in on what they were looking for and they knew that that could transition. And then you being you, I'm sure it was like a slam dunk
1: to bring you on board. Oh, it was, it was exciting. And I still got to do some international work because a lot of, I was able to travel to China a lot with that role. So, right. Oh my gosh. Okay.
0: So, all right. So it's 2014. You are, picking up, you are moving your life now to California from Indiana. You're going to what is just arguably one of the most well-known brands. I'm sure people were just falling over themselves when you said that that's where you were headed. Tell us about starting at Apple. What was that like for you?
1: Oh my gosh, it was very different. Mm. So it it was exciting. I remember this is also another like really nerdy moment and so cliche, but I remember I had just moved to California. didn't know anyone. I mean, had like zero friends. And I like the weekend before work was just like, basically like watching some documentary about Steve Jobs and like, crying to myself, watching him reveal the iPhone on the stage. And I was like, Oh my gosh, like, I'm finally going to be working for this company that I've been like looking up to for my entire life. I'm so Mm -hmm. excited. And I joined that following week. And I think, I think my boss called me on like Sunday night and he asked like, Hey, can you fly to China tomorrow instead of going to onboarding? And so it was very, it was like, you know, baptism by fire. So You know, in pharmaceutical manufacturing, it takes like years to like discover a molecule. And then like for that molecule to like finally get down to the pipeline and become a medicine. And then even in the devices side, there's so much red tape. It can take like years to go from like prototype to final production. But the iPhone, it's like in six months, like we go from prototype to like mass production for a new launch date. I think I joined in like January or February of 2015. And it was like, we're already starting that ramp we're at the very beginning, like prototype builds are going on right now. Like, why don't you get there tomorrow and just like, go see how it goes and and learn. And so um, I was in China, like by the end of day one of my job. And then I think I was there for like two weeks and then came back. And it was just like on and off for like two weeks in the States, two weeks in China, two weeks in the States, two weeks in China for a while. And it was honestly, it was the hardest work I've probably done in my life Mm -hmm. because it was so fast paced. And there's like, very little margin for error just because you're on such tight timelines. Very long days, you're working two time zones, you're communicating with executives in Cupertino and you're working assembly lines in China and you're trying to like catch multiple shifts of the assembly line workers while you're there and you're testing different things out. There's like five different streams going on throughout the day and things you need to keep track of. And so it's mentally exhausting and physically exhausting. So it was very, very different from like Eli Lilly where you're like, You know, in this like bubble of like everybody is around you, like nurturing you, you have a mentor, you have, you know, your boss and like everyone is all about like work-life balance and family and like, you know, just the Midwest like style, just like very warm and welcoming. And then Apple, you know, it was just like, hey, we're doing this and we're going to be sprinting until the end. But I will say that when I saw that iPhone launch again, like I got teary eyed on the launch day because it was just like, you work so hard. And then to finally see it being revealed to the world and people like lining up outside of stores all over the place to just like see the first one or get their first iPhone. It was really cool. And seeing the first one come off the assembly line and finally be ready to be sold was really cool. So yeah, yeah. I would say really hard, but really rewarding. Right.
0: That is a bit of a, culture shock in a lot of ways. I mean, going from the Midwest to Silicon, like being dropped in the middle of Silicon Valley, going from, you know, something that is like laced with red tape and can take years versus, you know, a six month turnaround time with no margin for error. And that's almost going to the other extreme of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. In some ways you mentioned like baptism by fire. Like you probably didn't have a lot of time to think like, Mm -hmm. can I do this job? Like Was there ever a moment where you were like, oh dear, like, what have I done? Or did it feel right? Like you'd found where you were supposed to be?
1: So I think there were mixed feelings. (laughs) Yeah, there were mixed feelings. I never thought to myself, I shouldn't have moved out here and I shouldn't have taken this job. I was so excited that I did that because I knew it was going to open up so many other doors for me. And I had seen and heard all about that from all the, you know, coworkers that I met at Apple, they were just like, Oh yeah, you're in that role where like once you do this everyone in in the valley knows that you've been through boot camp. And so mm. it's for me like it was like I'm doing my time and I'm getting this incredible experience and I can take it wherever I want after this. And so mm. for me like that's what kept me going and again it was that stubbornness. It was like I'm not going to give up on this because I know it's really important to me long term, but I also, you know, I had the I think I was able to reason with myself that like this lifestyle is probably not for me forever because I think I was spending 90 days a year in China and it was an opportunity to like extend to 180. And I, you know, I was tired after like, after a year of it, after 18 months of it, I was really tired after like two product cycles. And I I wasn't ready to give up on hardware. I know hardwares are always going to be hard and you always have to do a lot of travel. But I also was kind of craving like more of a startup experience because then I had been like, introduced to the whole startup scene but I was still feeling like a big outsider because I was at such a massive company but when I'd be in San Francisco meeting friends and friends of friends there would be people there that were starting companies or you know talking about that space and I just wanted to learn more about that and so my next role was at Snap where I was able to take that hardware experience in consumer electronics to their first consumer electronics product spectacles but instead of being like one person of like hundreds working in iPhone operations like I was the operations person, like out of a team of 80, that was like working on every single part of Spectacles from marketing to legal, to like go to market, to manufacturing, to like electrical engineering. So it was like, I knew everyone working on this product and we were all together, almost like our own standalone company inside of Snap working on launching it. And so that was, again, a really different experience in terms of scale, because I went from this like beast that knows like they're a manufacturing juggernaut. They know how to do this over and over again at Apple to like a company that's trying to do it for the first time. And so it felt more like a startup experience.
0: Okay. I'm going to come back to what you just said. There's something that has come up a couple of times. And I, I just like to call things out when I hear them that are really interesting, which is you call it stubbornness. I'm going to reframe that as like, you are, have like a higher purpose behind what you are aspiring to do, which gives you the ability to kind of play the long game. And, Mm. you know, like, I I think what's really beautiful is like, you know, even when you were in undergrad and you knew mechanical engineering wasn't for you, you knew that there was a lot of value in the skills that you were acquiring and that it would create a, a really beneficial foundation that you could leverage in the future. And same thing with Apple. It's like, I really appreciate whether it has been with hindsight or very much in the moment, the intentionality of why you were doing what you were doing. Even when you realize this is a insane clip that I don't know that this is long-term sustainable for what I envision my life to look like, but knowing what value you were getting out of it to make doing the work at that pace and intensity worthwhile for that period of time. You know, I think that's what's so... I just wanted to call that out of like, there was a higher purpose behind what you were doing. So, you know, I, you call it stubbornness. I call it work ethic. You know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. you knew you had a, why you had a why yeah. behind what you were doing and you had a vision of where that experience was ultimately going to set you up for the success that you, you knew you were capable of in the future, even if you didn't know where exactly it was taking you. So,
1: yeah, I just want to call that, that out. reframing. I actually took some notes there so I could use some of those words.
0: Oh good, um, good, but
1: good,
0: yeah, good. Helpful. Yay. Yeah. Well, good. Now I'm so curious because again, coming from this world, and I was just reading the book Range, and they were talking about wicked and kind environments. For anyone who's not familiar, so kind is basically like repeatable environments where you, you know, can follow a similar process and you get regular and accurate feedback. And a lot of times just showing up, you can improve versus wicked, where it's incomplete or unclear, and you may or may not get feedback. And even if you get the feedback, it may or may not be accurate, which lends itself very well to startups. So I would say in some ways, you are going from a, you know, quote, kind environment where there was a a process, there was a, a kind of a machine that had been generated to Snap, where you're in a wicked environment. I'm very curious how you manage that transition from going from, you know, being on a team of hundreds to now being a, an operations team of one.
1: Yeah. I was really, really excited for the opportunity. I also had a little bit of imposter syndrome just because it was like, wow, it's no longer me and 10 other people like making sure that this yeah. one, you know, that we're ready for mass production of this one iPhone model. It's like, now I'm the person that has to make sure that the supply chain, not the only person working on the supply chain, but the only person like leading development builds and stuff. And so it was definitely like a smaller team, less resources that you're working with. And I wanted to come in and pull my weight. And so I came in just with a lot of excitement, and nervousness about that, but mostly excitement, I would say. And I always tell myself, like with every career move, if you're not feeling a little bit uncomfortable, then it's probably not the right one. So yeah, I just kind of told myself that again, playing the long game. And I think the other thing was because I had been through a big change going from Eli Lilly, such a different culture to Apple, and then having to uproot my life and all my friendships to do that. I felt like, okay, if I've been through that, then this is just going to be a blip on the radar. I can do a change again. It's just going to be different. So yeah.
0: Hell yeah. Good for you. I sadly think that makes you a little bit unique. And it's yeah, beautiful, well, and I hope that that becomes a more normal behavior. Because what a brilliant way to look at the situation!
1: Yeah, I actually saw Harry Stebbins post about this on Twitter the other day. Who thinks he's interviewed a ton of founders, and he thinks that moving early on in your childhood, like, mm-hmm. leads to like more adaptability later on as an adult. And I moved when I was like eight years old, and like kind of had my whole. Life uprooted moving from Ohio to Indiana as my dad launched his business. And I still look back on that day. as like, wow, if that had never happened, which I hated in the moment, maybe I would have been more intimidated by some of these opportunities and I wouldn't have taken them.
0: That's really fascinating. We moved three times before I was nine. Wow. I would consider myself a very fluid. And in fact, I kind of almost annoyingly crave change because I get bored. Yeah,
1: Yeah. that's really interesting. Yeah. Very Same. interesting.
0: Okay. Oh my gosh. All right. So, you know, as operations program manager at SNAP, you were there for about a year and a half, you know, during this time, was there anything that you, you know, you, you kind of touched on imposter syndrome. It sounds like you had some really great tactics to offset that with like reminding yourself of like, I've already been through a much bigger change than this transition. Were there other things that you were able to do to support yourself or kind of, you know, take the microphone back from that inner critic or that imposter?
1: Yeah. I mean, I just, I always want to approach everything with humility. So I definitely knew like, you're not going to walk in and know everything from day one. And that if you feel uncomfortable, that's part of the process. But so I kept kind of telling myself that, and then I, I focused on, you know, getting to know the people around me. I didn't join from day one on spectacles. It was like, we already had a launch date. We needed to do our last development build before we could be ready to launch it. And so I focused on getting to know people around me and like what had worked, what hadn't worked. And in some ways it was a little friendlier than the Apple environment because we had all kind of taken this risk on this smaller product, whereas like the iPhone is, you know, you know it's going to be successful every time. And there's a lot of like pride in that. And this was more like, hey, we all took this risk together, like we're all kind of crazy for doing this. And so like let's support each other, getting it off the ground. So it was there were a couple of things I think that helped me in that environment. I did not have the same mentorship or anything like that there either, but I did have, you know, a few coworkers that I trusted and, you know, it was a great work experience and and just an opportunity to do something different than I had before. So I just kept coming back to that.
0: It's interesting too, because we're back to how you operate at Eli Lilly that ultimately put you in a team lead role, which is Mm -hmm. you're really great at working in a team dynamic, gathering inputs from experts and rallying people around a common objective. Yep. That's really
1: cool. Yeah, that's fun for me.
0: Yeah. So yes, you really got to dial that side of yourself up. Okay. So you're there for a year and a half and then you make another big move and you go to cruise.
1: Yes. Yeah. So cruise, I love talking about cruise because I feel like this was one of the most like high alpha experiences in my career. Mm -hmm. So I joined when Cruises was about 400 employees, which sounds like a lot, but it's probably, I'm guessing about like 95% software engineers. And so I was one of the earliest business hires at the company or non-engineering hires at the company. And at the time, I think we thought or had publicly announced that we were launching in like early 2019. And so my role again was to be like, come into the company and pull together all these inputs from all these different people in legal and government affairs and product and engineering and make sure that we were going to be ready to launch a consumer product for self-driving cars. And so that was definitely daunting, but so exciting because I had decided that during my time at Snap, I kind of pivoted my career more to software and go to market Mm -hmm. toward the very end. And I did that because again, I had been sitting in Silicon Valley and companies for a while and, and also in LA for a little while. And I wanted to explore the software side of the world because I also knew that this like traveling to China every month for the rest of my career was not gonna be sustainable. And I saw how much risk exists in hardware. Like Spectacles was not a huge success. And there were a lot of learnings on the go-to-market side. And I realized how much risk even a company with endless resources have in taking on a hardware challenge. And that doesn't mean that no one should fund hardware, or no one should work on hardware. It just means it's a totally different beast and you have to be ready for that. And so I wanted to know what the other side was like, the software side. And so at Cruise, it was an awesome opportunity to bring my cross-functional experience, not necessarily my hardware experience, to Cruise and start pulling together inputs from different teams to prepare for an eventual commercial launch. Now that launch got pushed back several times because of the technical timeline and all the safety, not even regulations, but safety intentions at Cruise. And so we wanted to be ready before we ever put a passenger in a self-driving car, which I commend, but that created like several setbacks in the role and I had to kind of reframe and keep adapting over time. And then the company was also growing massively at the time that I was there. So I joined at 400 people. I left at 2,500 people over like three and a half years. And I, you know, joined as an IC doing cross-functional leadership. I left as a people manager, leading like seven people on my team and working on launching pilots and products in different markets and cities. And so that was really cool. There was a lot of growth there. And early on in my time at Cruise, it felt like my scope was increasing like twofold every single quarter. And then toward the end, we got so big that it felt like, you know, my role was a little more stagnant. And so I felt like I had learned like what I came there to learn. And again, like I had fallen in in love with venture and angel investing on the side. And so I wanted to do like one more startup experience and more of an executive role after that. And that's why I ended up eventually leaving was to pursue both of those paths. But Cruise was really an experience that continues to give back to me. Like I've funded founders that have come out of Cruise as Snap as well. But I felt like, you know, this is one where the network just continues to be really strong. The network of investors in crews, the network of people who worked at cruise And it's just, yeah, it's a really cool community. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. It's interesting as we're going through this because on paper, it can kind of look like this really big leap from mechanical engineer to tech investor. But it can look like this really big leap. And then what's really interesting is that, it is this very kind of progressive, it's like each move that was made, it was just a tweak, if you will, was made Mm -hmm. into a kind of refining each time you were learning something about yourself or you were seeing something that was of interest that you wanted to try on. And so each move you were able to kind of gather new information and continue refining it. So like, especially like you mentioned in this role, one, it's so cool that you're getting back to that more go-to-market side that you were being pulled to when you were at Delta where you were really enjoying, or maybe it was Eli Lilly, where you were really enjoying getting to be involved with the photo shoots and looking at the products. And, and now here you are, software, and moving more away from engineering and into to go-to-market. That's, yeah. really, that's really cool.
1: Yeah. And interestingly enough, that whole concept is also something I learned at Eli Lilly from them having such a strong mentorship program and like also just communications with my boss, my first boss there, like we sat down and I told him like my end goals. I was like, I have big goals for myself. I want to be here someday in my career, which thank God he wasn't just like, oh my God, this, this like person is so annoying, but Instead, he sat down with me and he's like, okay, if you want to get there, like you have to make multiple steps and every step in your career, you should be bringing 50% to the table. And so 50% should not be new, but the other 50% Mm -hmm. should be new and should force you into a new space. And that could be gaining technical expertise. It It could be gaining leadership expertise. It could be anything. It could be new relationships or new scale. And so there are some moves I've made in my career that were like, I was going from one scale to the next or one industry to the next or one function to the next. But there was always something common between every move that I've made.
0: Oh, how neat. You know, I think what's so cool is that, you know, having somebody who took you seriously
1: and took your ambition seriously. Yeah. It's yeah. huge. Cause I think sometimes like I learned throughout my career to like temper that a little bit. Like I think right out of college, you're like, I want to be like a CEO someday. And people are like, okay, that's cute. Like <laughs> go do your work. But you know, having somebody that believes in you and is willing to like talk to you and be real about like what's, what that's going to take is so yeah. critical at that age. And then I learned also over time, not everyone is that accepting of that level of ambition. Like some people are just like, Oh my gosh, this person like has no humility. And, and I don't think that's what it is. I think it's just, you know, big goals for yourself and, you know, wanting to crash through glass ceilings. So, right.
0: You know, for some of us, it's just written on our hearts to have a big stage and everyone can have impact. And for, you know, it just depends. It's different. It looks different Mm -hmm. for each of us, what the level of that impact looks like. And, I do think that, you know, unfortunately it can happen where people encourage you to stay small instead of really kind of sparking a fire underneath that beautiful, beautiful Mm -hmm. ambition. So that desire to do more. And I love that advice of thinking about what you're bringing with you and leaving room for you to grow. That's really, really great advice. You had some really valuable inputs early on that gave you some really great foundational Things to keep in mind. That's really cool. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. So, yeah. So, last stop here. So, you now, you actually do two things. You were ready to start dabbling and investing. And then also, this is where you go to Atmos to be the head of Mm -hmm. operations and really now be in an executive level role at a smaller startup. So, tell us about this transition of landing at Atmos. Like, how did you get there? And then we can tackle how you ended up with the council
1: at the time that i was leaving cruise i had been angel investing for 3 years kind of building up my own track record seeing if i liked it and then i actually had a plan that you know i'm going to leave cruise and i'm going to go full time on this venture fund and go all in and then i ended up through a friend getting introduced to nick donahue who's the ceo of atmos and they were really looking for an operations leader to come in and help them scale to the next level i think when i started talking to them they were like seven employees and so I had it in my head like I'm going full time into venture, but then when I got this opportunity, it was like, wow! I haven't had an opportunity to be an executive in operations, but I've done all these experiences in operations throughout my career, and then now I have the people management experience to manage multiple functions. And so I was really excited about the opportunity, and I still knew that I wanted to go into venture full time, and I was upfront with that with the CEO about that, and that I was already working on my like own venture fund at that point, and he was very supportive of that, and. I thought like this last experience will kind of be like my last hurrah in the operating world and it will actually make me a stronger investor because i work with you know pre-seed and seed stage founders who are trying to get their companies to that level or from the level that i joined to the level that i left and so for me just getting to go in and like be on the ground at such a small startup and see what that's like i think gave me another level of empathy for founders and what they are working through because i think a lot of investors I've met a lot of investors that went from the investing world into the upper operating world, and they were shocked at what they found goes on inside of startups. And so I think like when you're an investor, you're seeing these like, you know, beautiful bullet points in an investor update email. And you're like, wow, like this company just reached 1.6 million ARR. They just hired three people. They're having like one small little challenge. I can help them in X, Y, Z way, but they don't like, you don't know what's going behind the scenes to Produce that level of an update and how messy it sometimes needs to get in order to produce a result. And so that was a really like helpful experience to me. So at Atmos, I managed everything outside of product and technology. So I was managing marketing team sales, project management, land, and growth. So yeah, it was a very small team and I was, you know, lucky to work with some amazing people. But ultimately, like, you know, after. I think a little over a year there, I was like, okay, now is my time. I have to like double down on this venture fund. And this is my end vision all along. And it was a good time to leave too, because I think the housing market was taking a turn and that was an opportunity for people on my team to step up and lead in a bigger way. So, yeah,
0: I mean, that's a, a lot basically doing everything outside of product engineering. How are you balancing all of the priorities that I'm sure you had for each one of the departments that you were overseeing.
1: Yeah. I think the main thing was understanding like what's the goal of the company this year. like Where are we trying to get to? Is it a revenue goal? Is it a product goal? If we're focusing on product alone, like how can we support the product team with the insights that we're gaining from the market? And if it's a revenue goal, like how can we set the sales team up for success and have everything we're doing in marketing support and build a foundation so that it's easier for the sales team to close deals? How do we make sure we have the right people in the right roles on the right teams? And so really just starting with that end goal and like working backwards, like what can we, what can each team in this org do to impact that result? And lucky enough, like, you know, we we're a pretty flat team, like underneath me, it was like, sometimes the whole marketing team is like one person or two people at any given time. And so there was a lot of ownership and accountability. So it wasn't like you have to communicate down, like, three levels of people just to get something done. So you can get pretty quick results from small teams, which is pretty cool, which oh, seems right. counterintuitive. You think more people you throw out a problem, the easier it would be, but sometimes it actually makes things more complex. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Having worked at both, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. And, and um ruthless prioritization becomes really important because there are yes. a million things you can do. And that's kind of why I wanted you to share I think for anyone listening, it doesn't matter if you're in a leadership role or not. The idea of aligning your priorities and thinking about your work in regards to what are the goals of the company and what can you be doing to serve those goals is a really helpful way to, when you have too many things inevitably on your plate, how to Mm -hmm. prioritize what gets done and maybe what gets pushed. Yeah. In some
1: ways, a survival instinct just kicks in and you're just like, well, we can't get it all done. So like we have to prioritize now. Right. Right.
0: Yes. I know you're a mother too. I think that's one of the beauties that is really not talked Mm -hmm. about enough about motherhood is that need, that, that, that instinct for prioritization, Mm -hmm. because you get even more proficient at that
1: skill. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't want to waste any time. I mean, you have so many things going on that you're like, I can't, I can't be taking on some like task or opportunity that's actually not driving any ROI for me or anyone that, you know, I care about. So yeah, yeah, it's hard.
0: Let's talk about that for a minute because you're a big deal and you are, I'm sure somebody who is regularly, people are asking for your time. They are asking for things of you. And even while you were at Atmos, you're also, you have your own angel investing fund that you're managing. How do you go about, either setting boundaries or thinking about how you prioritize because you, you can't do all the things, even though I'm sure they, a lot of them are interesting. How do you figure out what gets your attention and what you turn down?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I've got a lot of streams going on right now. So I invest in startups. I also go through like random waves of fundraising because for a fund, you do like a first close and then you go invest in startups and then you do a second close and you invest in startups. And so there's just like rolling fundraising thing going on. And then in addition to that, I lead an angel community. And so there's a lot happening. And then on the sidelines, I'll get questions like, Hey, can I pick your brain about angel investing? Or can I pick your brain about how to build a career into VC? Or like, Hey, I'm another fund manager, want to connect and just like learn about each other's thesis and see if we could co-invest. And so I've learned that like my number one priority is supporting the founders in my portfolio because A, mm. I've already made a bet on them and I believe in them and I need to support them and I want them to always have a good experience working with me. Ideally, that leads to even more founder intros. It leads to me being able to invest in future rounds and get more access for my LPs that are believing in me. My second priority is everything LP related because... Number one job as a CEO is never run out of money. And so fundraising and then also maintaining relationships I already have is very important. That's within work. I would say like family stuff trumps all of this. Like, you know, if Eva is sick one day and I need to pick her up from daycare, I'm going to push my meetings to go make that happen. And I try to spend time with my family on the weekends. For me, it's important even from a work perspective to be able to step away so that I'm fresh coming in and more creative. So those are the main things. It's like number one, family, number two, founders, number three, LPs. And then number four is kind of the community that invests alongside of the fund, which is very important to me because I want more female angel investors in our system because women manage like less than 2% of U.S. financial assets. Basically, like if we don't start growing that pie, we have a really big problem, which we already do. So I'm passionate about that. And then... For the one-off requests, if I don't know someone, I'm unlikely to take a call, to be honest. And so I have to think about like what are ways to scale myself. So even joining this podcast today is a way for me to scale myself because now it's not just one person that can hear my story and why I made a certain decisions. Many like hundreds, maybe thousands of people might hear this and that can impact them. And then I've never done it, but I've I've known other entrepreneurs do things like mentor pass where they like, you know, if you want to get time with them, you can pay for it and you can go like have a session with them. For me, even if I was getting paid for it, I still don't have time for it. So I'm not (laughs) doing that right now. And then the other thing is, I think it's really important to give back. So I don't ever want to be in a position where I'm like, I'm so busy that I have no time to talk to anyone that needs help. Um, And so I, I have picked a couple of people in my life. Like if a family member calls me, and they need help, like navigating an early career decision or something, like I want to help them be successful because I know they started with humble roots, just like me. And then I also have like a mentee from my time at cruise who like, I helped her get her first promotion and things like that. And we keep in touch every two weeks. We actually have a meeting on the calendar for 30 minutes to just talk about what's going on at her current role, you know, navigating conversations with her boss, things like that. Mm -hmm. And so I pick like very specific Relationships where I know that I can make a difference. And it's like fulfilling for me because I know that person and I'm going to hear the result of it. So, yeah. Yeah,
0: Yeah, that's so great. Just knowing that, you know, the work that you're doing now, even though you are part of this community of of angel investors, you work with founders through your VC fund, you are, you know, interacting with people all the time. There still is a lot of solitude in what you're doing. Mm -hmm. How do you? go about in your personal development or investing in yourself. And again, kind of coming back to those like support structures around you, because you you don't have necessarily a company Mm -hmm. that you're operating within. What do you do to provide support for yourself?
1: There's a lot. And it's funny because sometimes when I'm talking to new people about the council, I say we, we this and we that. And they're like, yeah. wait, are you the solo GP or do you have other partners? And I'm like, oh, I am the solo GP, but I am surrounded by so many people that it feels like a we effort. And so like a, like the founders in our portfolio are what, what are making the portfolio so special. And, you know, hopefully going to be allowing us to drive outlier returns for our, our LPs. And then the LPs, I have 40 people that have come in and backed me And so I couldn't do it without their capital or their support. And so I think of them as part of my team, even if we're not talking every day. And some of them have also volunteered to share more deals or like help portfolio founders when they have specific questions in their area of expertise. And then also within the council community, my partner Annabelle, who started it four years ago, I joined in like their first meeting. We ended up co-leading it together for the next three years. She's still involved today, so she's not a partner in the fund, but she's involved as an advisor. And we meet every week. We go through deal flow together, and that just helps there be a little bit of camaraderie. And then we must step a new D. She leads our community, and then recently we brought on. Tarlin and Alicia, two new hires. Alethea is working on a short-term project to kind of revamp our community. And then Tarlin is going to be taking over after that. So it's really cool because I think on the fund side, I very much am alone, but I am supported by LPs and founders. And then on the community side, I'm pretty hands-off in terms of how that angel community is rolling. I just want to make sure that we have the same strategy and our strategies align between the fund and the angel groups so we don't start straying in different directions. So yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. I never, ever want these to end. I have one question that's just burning in the back of my mind and I would be remiss if I did not ask it of you. At the very beginning of this conversation, you mentioned just lack of exposure to investing as a career path was part of why it just never crossed your mind. Now that there's more exposure, I think the new hurdle that I see so many women in particular facing is like, I don't know, maybe that's not for me. I right. And, and to your point, there's 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 not a lot of women today that are doing it more. It's coming. when you think about what you know are some of maybe some of the the traits or kind of some of the the higher level, like if if you kind of have an inkling for these things, that you know, it might be worth exploring it or just keep it as a possibility for the future. Are there things that you think of that like if a woman's listening, she might identify in herself that, potentially an investor could be something that she should think about in the future.
1: Yeah, definitely. So I think if you're someone who likes advocating on behalf of others, that is a very core skill because if you think about it, like every portfolio founder that you fund, you're advertising for them all the time. Like if I'm on calls with other co-investors or like other investors like me, I want to talk about my portfolio companies that I really believe in because. Maybe this co-investor could lead their next round. So I'm constantly merchandising, shilling my portfolio companies that they're, you know, they deserve to be, be shilled. And so, you know, if you like advocating for others, that's a big part of the job. If you are the type of person that can see something special in someone or something that no one else has yet seen, I think that is another really strong suit. Like, you know, there are some founders that come from non-traditional backgrounds and they're not yet in this like Silicon Valley vortex where you know everyone knows who they are and it takes them five days to close their fundraising round. If you have an eye for talent, I think that that is. A major, major part of this role is like finding out who are those founders that are going to be breakout successes. Or if you've worked closely with founders before that have been very successful and you're able to pattern match that, that is very important. And then I think if you like taking calculated risks, I think you don't have to be like an irresponsible risk taker to get into investing. I know it's a risky space, investing in private companies or startups, especially at the earliest stages like I do. But, you know, at the end of the day, you're taking calculated risks. You're investing in a certain number of companies. You're investing at a certain stage because you have a particular insight in that stage and that sector. And so you're kind of putting up guardrails for yourself and you're comfortable taking risks within those guardrails.
0: Boy, if that doesn't describe so many women that I know. I <laughs> totally.
1: Mean, I, yeah. Wow, I, think I can't wait for more investors. women to get into
0: investing. Yeah. If these are some of the core things, like advocating for others, are you kidding right. me? I know. Oh, exactly. Thank you for sharing that. I just... I hope you listening, even if you can check a couple of those, like, yes, it is a possibility and it is something at least worth keeping yourself open to as a possibility in the future. Oh, Amber, you are just such a bright light. I'm going to ask you my last question that I always ask everyone, which is, as you think back on this amazing career up until now, if there was either a piece of advice that has served you really well or something that you have learned along the way that you want people listening to take away with them. If there's just one thing, what would you want them to take with them?
1: One is one that we already talked about. I think like, well, actually I'll take it in a different direction with that 50, 50 rule, where you're always bringing something old from your last role into your next step, but learning something that's new. I think just having the confidence that you're never going to know everything before you jump into the next thing. And so don't be afraid of change. Don't be afraid of not knowing what you're doing, because literally no one does. No one knows everything going into their next role. I have a lot of friends that are like so intimidated. They don't even want to apply for something because they're like, I'm not an expert in X, Y, Z. And that's like one of 10 bullets on the job description. And so I think sometimes a lot of women just hold themselves to such high standards that it holds them back. So just be comfortable with a little bit of, you know, lack of comfort. And then I think on a personal note, like I've been reflecting on this. I think when I was younger, I tried to also just surround myself with, you know, whoever I thought was cool at the moment. And those people weren't necessarily like believers in me. And so mm. um, I think just like finding like who are your believers, whether those are friends or professionals or colleagues, just like finding those people and finding the smartest people that you can and the people that believe in you and surrounding yourself with them. You're Not, here. Not like spending too much wrong, too much time on the wrong people. I, think. I love, yeah.
0: I, yes, yes. I love that, Amber. I think that's such a great piece of advice. And the kind of, the first one you gave to, you mentioned earlier, like being uncomfortable was part of the process. Mm-hmm. I think that's just such great things to keep in mind is like, that is just part of being new at something. Oh, Amber, thank you so much for the gift of time to hear your amazing story, for the work that you're doing, for the advocacy you're doing, for so many amazing founders that are truly trying to make a difference, a meaningful impact in this world. And I'm just so excited to see what the future holds for you.
1: Awesome. Well, this was a great trip down memory lane and I appreciate you asking such thoughtful questions and I hope everybody gets a lot out of it. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Each week I am blown away at
0: the opportunity to get to sit down with women just like Amber and hear how her career evolved. It's so powerful to be able to see the progression and such a great reminder to just continually to learn about ourselves, be open to what we want next and be willing to go for opportunities that stretch us. I loved when she talked about the 50, 50 of being confident and 50% the area and 50% we can grow. If you enjoyed this conversation or Amber just really spoke to you, please take a moment, shoot her a note, let her know the impact that she has had on you. If you just love this podcast, I'd love it if you just take a moment and left us a review wherever it is that you listen to your podcast. As always, I want to say a big thank you to our audio editor, Josh Reedford, for making these each and every week. And last and never least, thank you to this amazing community. I am so grateful that you come back week after week and love getting to be part of your routine. Until next week, y'all, keep rising.